0: Uh, because there are some facts about history, there, there are some things that we just can't ignore. We have to address some issues. And today we're going to do that a little bit. We're going to sound a little bit uh, critical cool of the Catholics at times. It's still not the whole theme, even of today's lesson, but it is going to be time kind of rolling down that. that really so, uh, to start out, John Calvin really disliked church. He didn't like Ignatius at all. In fact, he believed that Ignatius' letters were forgeries. He thought they were countervisions. I um, came later in church history. Someone wrote something and they pretended it was by Ignatius. Now, he wasn't 100% wrong on that. There's actually up to about a dozen letters that bear Ignatius' names that are extant today, extant in And almost half of those, about five of them, are actually widely known to be forgeries. Scholars across the board largely say, yeah, these were fake, or at least so corrupted they can't be trusted. Um, unfortunately for Calvin, though, a bunch of them wrote, a bunch of the letters really are genuine. Uh, there's a lot of wide consensus to the fact that the seven letters we looked at last week were actually genuine works by nations, and that consensus is not just Catholic, but non-Catholics as well, non-Catholic scholars as well tend to agree on that. We're not going to go down the reasons why today, but um, there's some good resources out there. In my bibliography, there's a book called um, uh, The Complete Works of the Church Fathers. It's edited by Philip Schaff. Just one place you could start, if you want to check that out, there's an introduction to Ignatius, and he kind of gets into that bit of history, um, the the textual scholarship behind it. And then you can go look elsewhere as well. So we're not going down that road. What we do want to recognize is that this has been a controversial subject. Calvin has been accused of rejecting Ignatius' letters just because Ignatius' theology didn't jive with his. I don't know if that's true or not. It's definitely possible. It's not a good reason to reject a, a, a writing of history, of course. But it creates some questions that we have to answer. There are some controversial things that appear in Ignatius' letters. And today, I want to look at those and kind of talk about them and maybe help us really understand what's going on uh, with these issues here, okay? Um, Before we do that, let's just start by setting some anchors, some important anchors for us as we go forward. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says this, According to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul, an apostle of Christ, laid the foundation of the church in Corinth. When he preached the gospel in that city, and that foundation, of course, as he says, is Christ as revealed by Christ's chosen apostle, him, Paul. Um, now, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 21. Keep your finger in the first Corinthians and we'll go right back there. <clears throat> Ephesians two nineteen through twenty one. Again, Paul is writing. And he writes in Ephesians now. He says this. Now, therefore, you who you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, and who the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul told us that the foundation of the church is Christ. Now here in Ephesians, he, he tells the same apostle. Paul tells us, he develops this point further, and he tells us that the apostles and prophets are also part of that foundation. Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now why does Paul say this? Well, he's saying this because the church only knows Christ through the testimony of those people who, to whom Christ was directly revealed. The apostles and the prophets. The people who wrote the writings that now make up the Old Testament and New Testaments of the okay? And the church from ancient times, the Christian church, has always held this doctrine of the authority of, of these writings, the apostolic and prophetic writings, the scriptures. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. We're going to proceed on from verse 11. And if we look at that part, I'll well, just read here real quick. He says, from verse 12, reading over, he says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work, with sordidness What he's saying here is it's possible on top of this foundation, it is possible that people to come along and build something. And that something can be precious, or it can be something that is worthless. The background behind the statement for Paul is what's going on in Corinth. Uh, in Corinth, at the beginning of, of his letter to the Corinthians, he alludes to the fact that there are other teachers who came along after Paul and were teaching at this church. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a necessary thing. It's a good thing. We need teachers here. One of those teachers was a guy named Apollos, and he was, from what we know, a really good teacher. Um, Nothing against him that I'm aware of. Um, But nonetheless, these teachers are not apostles, and there's a warning to them. They must be cautious, because it is possible for them, if they're not careful, to teach error, and thus build wood, hay, and stubble on the foundation that uh, uh, Paul had laid there. So contrary to John Calvin I do have a deep respect respect for Ignatius we talked about that last time I think Ignatius was a great apostolic father and that there's a lot that we can learn from him. However, I do not accept Ignatius as infallible. I do not accept him as an error. I accept him rather as a really good uh, church leader from whom we can learn a lot. And so when we come to apostolic fathers or other church fathers or any other church leaders either now or in history past, we do handle with care. We want to handle with care. We want to take and keep the golden jewels that they build on the foundation of Christ and the church, but we also want to recognize and abandon leave the stubble if and when we find it in their writings and in their teachings. Okay, now, when we say things like this, you have to be aware there is a response that comes from Catholics and maybe some other people uh, it's a rhetorical response, an argument to counter it. And, and what you might hear, what you might hear some people argue and say, is that when we say something like this, it's like claiming that we know better than an apostolic father, someone who knew the apostles. We know better than that guy. Uh, we know more about apostolic doctrine than he did. Now this is sloppy rhetoric, and we can reject it. I'm going to tell you why you can reject it. There are three reasons why you can dismiss, confidently dismiss this argument. It's not a good argument. Reason number one, to disagree with an apostolic father or anyone else for that matter on a particular point or points is not actually the same thing as claiming we know more in total than he does. I I entertain the reality that quite possibly he overall may know more than I did and all of us here. But that doesn't mean that he was infallible and that we accept every single little thing. Okay, so that's reason number one. Reason number two, uh, though an apostolic father may have known an apostle and received his doctrine enlargement from an apostle, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything he says is something he got directly from an apostle. These guys were people too. They had their own ideas, especially after the apostles were gone, you have to imagine they developed their own thoughts. Um, They developed some of their own doctrines. That's understandable. You also don't really know how well a guy like Ignatius knew John. How long did he spend with John? Um, so all of that is, it is entirely possible that pe- that people like an apostle, or an apostolic father can actually commit error, can actually get something wrong. Um, even good teachers like Apollos, according to Paul, could be capable of error. Right there living in the age of the apostles, teaching at a church founded by an apostle while the apostle's still alive, yeah, it's possible for those guys to get it wrong sometimes, okay? So that's reason number two, I'll reject this rhetoric. Reason number three, and probably one of the uh, most obvious ones, is that even the apostolic fathers have some disagreement between each other. There's some discontinuity on certain issues, uh, certain doctrinal issues, there is some discontinuity between these guys. So if you have one apostolic father saying one thing and another one saying another thing, and it's not an agreement, you got to pick a side. You're gonna disagree with one of these guys. You can't agree with both of them, right? So, a bad rhetoric, don't accept it. Now all of this is not to say that the apostolic fathers did not, do not have a kind of authority, or that uh, uh, church tradition and history does not have a kind of authority. It does have authority. It's simply what we wanna do is wanna draw a line as to how far that authority extends. Um, the historical witness of the church from the Apostolic Fathers and onwards does form a total confirming testimony that again and again points back to Jesus Christ and the Apostles. So when we read the Apostles, when we read the Scriptures, we can turn to church history and find a lineage of men and women who affirm what's plainly written there at the Word. And that's where the authority of the church lies. That's where uh, it's a confirming testimony. I really believe that our doctrine, our Protestant doctrine, is largely in line with the apostolic fathers. It's actually a lot of agreement, particularly on the most important things. And I wanna show that to you. I think I've already showed that to you last week to some extent, and we'll see some more of that today. And I really, as we get into the controversial stuff, I would urge us not to really lose sight of that. Um, it's not us, uh, Ignatius is a great apostolic father, he's a great teacher. He's got a lot of good to say. Although you might criticize some small points that he makes today, um, don't lose sight of the fact that he's actually a good witness and a good testimony for the church overall. Any questions on this?
1: Uh, just a comment. Even the Apostle Peter, you know, me uh, you know, spending all this time with Jesus, being called an apostle, he was wrong in a moment of his vigilance uh, you know? yeah. and, and not just saying but you know um doing it, you know so he worked with the Lord yeah. he was in a moment you know, the Apostle Peter Paul had to, you know call him the attention to right. yeah. him even
0: the Apostles weren't yes. sinless yes yeah. but mm-hmm. they did they were adhering an to doctrine that is something so, but you're right, they did commit sin Dave, um, good comment. Um, what's all the fuss about, then? So, when we deal with Ignatius, last week we looked at the best things by Ignatius. What's all the fuss about? Um, I think there are three main things. There's probably a lot of stuff you can really you know, get down and, and, and really dig into um, and study with Ignatius, but there are three main things that most of the, I think, controversy and fight in the past, and nowadays as well, has kind of revolved around. And those three things do vary in prominence in his letters. One of those things is really prominent; It's in like almost every one of his letters. The other two things are not so prominent. They kind of appear here in one or two places, in one place maybe, and then he doesn't really talk about it again. So here they are. I'm just gonna line them up and border for you. So first of all, the most prominent issue his ecclesiology, his idea of church government and policy, how the church is uh, structured and governed, and the authority of the uh, church. Um, this appears in every letter, let me just read from his letter to the Ephesians, this kind of gives you a, a gist of what he says. He says this in Ephesians, his letter to the Ephesians, therefore it is fit that you should live in harmony with the will of the bishop, as indeed you do. For your honorable presbytery, which is worthy of God, is attended to the bishop at the strings of a harp. Uh, move on here find some other statements he makes. Uh, now each of you are to join in this choir so that he and me in uh, harmoniously in concord. That's actually a little bit of a weaker statement. Let me see if I can find another one real quick. Um, but basically he gets even stronger than that in his language where he effectively gives the bishop a uh, tremendous amount of power. Uh, we're going to unpack that a little bit later. I do have some other quotes on that. We'll look at more closely with speaking at. But Let's move on for now. The second issue that kind of comes up is his doctrine of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Ignatius clearly believed that the Eucharist was in some sense, quote, the flesh of our Savior, the uh, Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so and that comes from Uh, His letter that only gets about one mention, maybe some things that kind of imply it, but really only one clear mention. In his letter to the Smyrnaeans, he said this, speaking about some people he was criticizing quote They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. That's the second issue. The third issue is that he had a, a. apparently had significant reverence for the church that was in Rome. He does seem to have a special respect for the church there. It's not really, this is probably the smallest of issues, because that's about the best way I can sum it up. He had a respect for the church that was in Rome. And that's most apparent, really, with his greeting to the Romans. I'll try to find it here for you. He says this, Ignatius, who is called Theophorus, to the church which has obtained mercy to the majesty of the Most High Father, and so on. He says, The church which is beloved and enlightened by the will of him, that wills all things which are according to the love of Jesus Christ, worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of the highest happiness, worthy of praise, worthy of obtaining her every desire, worthy of being deemed holy, and which presides over love, and so on. It's a very, very reverent sort of greeting. You can compare that, perhaps, maybe, to his greeting to the other churches. It does seem a little bit different. In the, Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, he just says um, the church at an emphasis in Asia. He says this, Blessed with greatness by the fullness of God, the Father, predestined from eternity for abiding in unchangeable glory, united and elect through true suffering, and so on. pretty close, really. It's just not as long. That's about the main difference. All right, so those are the three things that we're going to kind of touch on every one of them. Now, before we really discuss the issues and the controversy about this, it's also good to maybe identify and make a distinction between a couple things. Um, One, there's what Ignatius says. And then two, there's what people make of what Ignatius says. And they're often two different things. Much of what I'm doing today is gonna be clarifying that, making that distinction. Um, So uh, so we're gonna go ahead and deal with these three issues uh, largely by taking that approach and also maybe by um, uh, considering what he does say uh, in its its own merits. So we're gonna go in reverse, because honestly the third one I think is the easiest so we're going to go from easiest to hardest. The easiest stuff out of So obviously, as you can probably imagine, in the course of the history of the Reformation and so forth, the um, the third one, his his reverence for the Church of Rome has been cited by Catholics to argue that Ignatius teaches the primacy of the Church of Rome. The idea that the Church of Rome is somehow this hierarchical authority over the entire Church Catholic. The fact is, oh so naturally that makes sense for Catholic doctrine, that, uh, that belief for them goes very far back in history, it doesn't go this far back. But it does go very far back in history and um, uh, it, it supports much of what they, uh, they are. But it's simply not what Ignatius said. He just uh, really addressed the Church of Rome you could possibly argue that he displays a greater degree of respect for them than possibly he does for the other uh, five churches that he writes to, okay? And the question, of course, is why? If he is, in fact, doing that, why does he give them this uh, extra uh, special respect? Well, before we answer that question, that some things are very clear and very obvious. He is, a respe- he is possibly respecting them, but if he really believes in the primacy of the Church of Rome, He's writing all of his, his letters to, to his churches that they need to be in submission to the bishop, right? The local bishop. He nowhere mentions to any of these churches that they need to be in submission to the Church of Rome. It's a rather bearing omission that he actually believes that. So That's the first problem that comes up with this. I think the reason that he shows, there's also a very good theory for why he might possibly be showing the Roman church at a heightened level of respect. What did happen early on in church, in the early patristic church, early church history, is certain churches did emerge as being sort of major churches and having a kind of seniority and even, yes, possibly authority over maybe what you might say junior churches or lesser churches, smaller churches. Uh, Of course, the first and most obvious one is Jerusalem. Jerusalem was one of those churches that was a senior church and did kind of have a, a, a bit of a quarry, uh, in some sense over the other one. Rome was, in fact, one of the senior churches. It was a church that really was a very a strong, very, very much a leader in the, the Christian world at that time, but Rome wasn't the, other, the only one either in its There was a handful of others. One of the others happened to be Antioch. Antioch was one of the major churches. Remember, Antioch is the one that sent out Paul and Barnabas as a real center for Christianity. It's where the gospel was first preached to the uh, Gentiles uh, widely and broadly. Um, Ignatius, remember, is the bishop of Antioch. So his respect for the, in, in his showing in his letter to the church at Rome, is very could very well be respect from one leader of a senior church. To another senior church, whereas the other churches that he writes to in Asia are more kind of like junior churches. But to actually see uh, this as an acknowledgement of the primacy of the Church of Rome is really a leap in logic across the Grand Canyon. There's really not a whole lot there. Moreover, there is some to also uh, some some evidence to contradict it. Ignatius writes in his uh, letter to. Uh, Rome, he says this one, he's he's giving them some instruction, he's uh, kind of asking them to do something, and he says this, I do not as Peter and Paul issue commandments unto you. They were apostles. I am but a condemned man. They were free while I am even until now a servant. That's a bizarre thing to say to somebody who has seniority or authority over you. Imagine if I said to Pastor George, maybe I want him to do something. George, could you do this? Now I'm not an apostle, but you know I'm not going to command you to do this. But I'm kind of ask you to do this. That's a bizarre thing to say. Now on the other hand, reverse that, and it does make some kind of sense. If George would say that, would say that to me, he's an elder, he has a position of authority. He could say something to that effect. Where you know I don't like giving commands, but I strongly feel this way. I'm not an apostle, of course. I can't command people uh, with the same level of authority. But I, I really strongly feel this way. He could say something like that. That would make sense. Well, that's what Ignatius is saying to Rome. So, if anything, it appears that Ignatius actually thinks his position uh, as the Bishop of Antioch might even be senior to that of the Church of Rome there. So, there's evidence against it. So, I think that more or less, does that pretty much answer the question for folks? It doesn't really, there's really not supporting evidence um, in Ignatius' letters to the primacy of the Church. Alright, let's move on to the next one. It's a little bit tougher. It's a little bit clearer what he does say. He argued in his letter to the Smyrnaeans, he said that the Christ is somehow, or uh, the Eucharist is somehow the flesh of Christ. So he's saying there's a presence in the Eucharist. And of course, Catholics claim this is uh, Ignatius supporting the doctrine of transubstantiation. If you're familiar with Catholic doctrine of the suffer, that Christ. Uh, actual flesh and blood becomes present, literally, uh, in the elements. Now, that may, in fact, be true. I can't necessarily argue confidently that Ignatius did not believe that or was not saying that. Um, The fact is, he doesn't really elaborate on it a whole lot. He kind of just says it. Uh, So what his precise doctrine is, is a little bit vague. He also says in um, his letter to the Trallians, he also calls faith the flesh of Christ. And love the blood of Christ. That's metaphorical, I'm pretty sure, in that uh, situation there. So it's kind of hard to really know what he's getting at, but uh, he may very well be saying Christ's flesh is present in the Eucharist. Um, my position that that's so would be to respectfully disagree with uh, the um But I think we should not really. Let's not run to hurl stones at Ignatius, even if he got there wrong. He wasn't, quote-unquote, a Um, I, I don't think we should be too quick to do that. One thing I think we should appreciate, I, I really think we should try to appreciate what was motivating Ignatius' position. In his letters, one of the things that he is warning us, that he's clearly concerned about, is heresy. There were some major heresies that were emerging at this time in the church were racking the church, shaking the church. Like, we're going to shake the church a lot more time to keep One of those heresies called Gnosticism was a really big one. It was really devastating. And the Gnostics had a problem with flesh. They had a problem with matter. They believed in their uh, dualistic ideology that Material, created matter was intrinsically evil. And because they believed that, they came up with various ways to separate Christ from his humanity. To claim that Christ was not really genuinely incarnate in the flesh. And we're going to get into this later. This is something we're going to touch on in this uh in this century, second century. Very important. But suffice it to say, they, they denied Christ's flesh. I really think that if uh, you look at how much uh, Ignatius deals with that issue even at this point, it's evident that he his belief that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior is most likely an overzealous reaction to the heresy of Gnosticism. Let me read to you from uh, his letter to the Troutes. He said, He said, um, he said this, Be deaf therefore, when anyone speaks to you apart from Jesus Christ, who was uh, the family of David and of Mary, who was truly born, both ate and drank, and was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate, was truly crucified and died in the sight of those in heaven and on, and on earth. Who also was truly raised from the dead. What he's saying in all of this is he's addressing that specific heresy, this idea, um, one of the ideas that, that the Gnostics used to um, support their theology was that Jesus only appeared to be human. Um, he only appeared to suffer. Uh Christ, that is, only appeared to, to uh, go through these physical, you know, experience the theology of physical matter. So he's addressing that. And this isn't the only place in other parts of his letters he again, deals with this issue. He really emphasizes Christ was truly in the flesh. Uh, So that's a very important thing. And I I think his his position on the Eucharist may well be an overzealous reaction to that Okay. All right, we'll move on to any questions before we move on to the last one. I want to have a comment. I don't know how many of us
1: here have been Catholic before or have been in a Catholic country. Uh, But I, I grew up in a Catholic country. And I can imagine Calvin being against uh, in measures because the, the, you know, the religious control of the Catholicism at the moment of uh, Calvin uh, really had no, you know, we, 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 we who are sitting here, we cannot understand that fully unless we we leave it by ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think, in my opinion, why Calvin was so opposed to those comments that nah, in national be. yeah. Because really the Catholic Church took that as a support for their belief of, of what they practice right now. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I, we just you know, have to be, uh, try to travel in time and be there and experience that, and uh, I grew up in a Catholic church. I, I, uh, it's difficult, you know. Uh, it's really tough uh, when you in in the classroom. You're everything, everybody else. Uh, I mean, out of, out of forty students, I am the only Protestant, and you can feel, you know. You, guys, you, know, you, know, uh, you can feel the difference you can feel the rejection and what you believe and, and once you're converted you know so i don't know making this comment you
0: know, yeah, no, right i think it's coming I
1: can, I as well
0: imagine, yeah. um michael i did have a question oh. I, I understand uh, how important it is for christ to be truly oh. man yeah. also Plus to understand how, you know, he was truly God, right, in his earthly ministry. What is, can you elaborate a little bit more on the danger of believing that the real body and the real blood of Christ is actually the element? Um, that's a really good question. I'm going to r- answer that further down the line, though. Okay. Um, in fact, that's a real good Reformation question, but will um, probably try to find a place in this course to do that as well. Uh, there's okay. a lot that's wrapped up into that transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, I think in its full form, really kind of evolved later. Mm-hmm. But um, there are there are some good points there to be made. Okay. But I'll I'll make a note and answer that question. You plan on getting to that question. In terms of, okay. Um, so for now let's go ahead and move on with church policy with Ignatius. So this is really the big one for Ignatius, I think. Uh, in all five of his or all six of his letters, so excluding the letter to Rome, he really emphasizes this Uh, doctrine he has of how the the church is governed, how it's structured. And that structure is like, it's basically this. There's one bishop, an individual man, who presides as the head authority over a local church. Underneath him, you have a presbytery, a body of elders who support him, also have authority, but they're below him. And then finally, of course, you have a body of deacons. It's a very hierarchical structure, and uh, just as some notes about this in the wider context of church history. This is, uh, first of all, Ignatius' letters are, are, are significant because they're the earliest clear uh, point where we see this structure identified, where it emerges as a clear way for churches to be structured. It's also, from this point onward in the patristic era, this is pretty much the structure that all churches have. Uh, every church has its fish up, and they have their uh, and deacons. So another note here is that this structure is at odds with Clement's ecclesiology. Remember how he dealt with Clement? Clement wrote a letter specifically to address a rebellion against presbyters, multiple presbyters. Specifically, his whole letter was about addressing that rebellion. And yet, he never mentions Bishop. Bishop is absent entirely from Clements, right? That's, that's, that's not a, an oversight. That can't be something that he just forgot to talk about. You're talking about, you, you know, don't rebel, and you don't talk about the Bishop that's supposed to be over the top of the So, undoubtedly, we have a contradiction between Clements and Ignatius here. They had different views on church politics, okay? Now, I tend to feel that Ignatius' structure of government is probably not as big a deal as it has been made to be. might be easy for me to say that, say that in my time and place in history, but it just seems like it is a little bit of a minor issue. Um, I would disagree, technically. Many, church, But many good churches throughout history, and even in our day, effectively operate this way. Uh, there are good evangelical churches today. They've got one pastor, head pastor, and pretty much the elders under him calls the shots, but uh, the elders under him kind of support it. It happens. It's not as big a deal as I think some people make it out. But it is technically a little bit of an issue. What also becomes an issue is what Ignatius says on top of that. The plot thickens a bit with some of the ways he explains it. So for example, in his letter to the Magnesians, he says this, your bishop presides in the place of God and you have presbyters in the place of the assembly of the apostles along with your deacons. And he says very similar things to the other churches. Um, and goes so, so far as to say that nothing in the church should be done apart from the bishop. Uh, and he even goes so far uh, in his letters to the Philadelphians as to associate submission to the bishop with personal salvation. He, there he's, he's, listen to what he says. Quote, as many as are of God and of Jesus Christ are also with the bishop. Do not err, my brethren. If any man follows him that makes a schism in the church, he shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Right, first of all, I'll deal with the uh, bishop of God statement. Um, at first glance, it sounds pretty bad, uh, but I think if we take it in context, whenever we read a whole writing in context, uh, it helps us you know, keep us from taking things in isolation and kind of running with them further than the author may have intended. One of the things that I'm reminded of when I read this statement is I'm reminded of Paul statement in Ephesians 5.23 where he says that the husband is the head of the wife, just like Christ is the head of the church. Um, now that's a pretty strong statement, too. If you take it in isolation, you could run pretty far with it to some really wild error. But we know not to do that because we know the context. And we know that although the husband is the wife, it doesn't mean the husband, I'm sorry, the husband is the head of the wife, it does not mean the husband is infallible. It also does not mean that the wife's submission extends to obeying the husband absolutely and unconditionally, even to the point that he tells her to commit sin. Right? There are some qualifications to Paul's very strong statement about the husband's, husband's headship over the wife. And I think we should afford similar respect and understanding to Ignatius. You read everything that he says. I don't really think it's reasonable that he's saying, especially if you read his letter to Paul Carpenter, it's clearly he knows Fellow part, fellow bishop, is capable of error. Is capable. He's, he's not infallible. Um, it's clear. I, I would say that Ignatius is is basically using some metaphorical language. I might not agree technically, unless I, I see an apostle say it clearly in the Scripture. But I wouldn't take it necessarily as him saying that the bishop is infallible, or saying that individual Christians or the church body is under obligation to obey the bishop absolutely and unconditionally. Um, there are things he doesn't really, he just doesn't address, for example. There's a question, of course, what happens if the bishop himself, uh, well, first of all, Ignatius gives these instructions in the context of dealing with uh, warnings against heresy. What happens if the bishop himself begins to teach heresy? What do you do then? And we know that that happens, and you have such know that that happens in the course of church history. Ignatius just doesn't deal with that. So I think as Catholics and Protestants alike, we need to respect this, this statement and not take it beyond its own context to where he probably never intended us to go. Okay, the second part about that, he submit, he he associates salva- er, salvation, personal salvation, with submission to the, to the bishop. With respect to this statement, I agree. I agree that it does have something to do. Submission to church authority does have something to do with personal salvation in the sense in which Ignatius intended it. So remember that last week we talked about Ignatius' uh, works or faith and works theology, how he relates it. And his, what he told us when we read back then is, uh, what he, the way he sees it is works are the outflow of genuine faith. He said quite plainly that believers are are seen, quote, seen to be, quote, of Christ by their works. So very logically, he then associates submission to church authority as well as commitment to church gathering and his own own personal imminent martyrdom that he's facing and a host of other things, all with salvation. There is an association. It's an evidence association. And that's true. So yes... American in evangelical individualists that we are, yes, you know, if you're a church hopper, if you haven't been able to commit to and submit to the authority of a local church, if, um, uh, you're, you know, church division and schisms and church splits, friendly following you where you go, you should begin, and you're not willing to repent, you should begin to question your faith. whether it's genuine, that's true. Ignatius' doctrine on salvation is not that submission to church authority and other good good works of that nature are part of a formula to gain salvation. He's saying that these works naturally show that we have salvation and we have Christ. I had some excellent quotes from Ignatius last week that really showed that this is, in fact, what his theology was. Here's another one that I thought was really valuable. In his letter to the Magnesians, he said this, the unbelieving are of this world. The believing have in love the character of Christ, by whom, if we are not in readiness to die into his passion, his life is not in us. You see, works is the evidence, not the angels. That's what he's saying. There's so much more I think we could really spend uh, a lot of time on Ignatius, he gets into, he talks a lot about how he's eager to face Margo, and that itself would be a whole lesson, I think, it's a lot of interesting things and even difficult things to deal with there, but fortunately it's the time we do have to move on. Uh, so this will be our last uh, lesson on Ignatius, and we'll move on to part next time. But I hope that what we have covered here today will help us understand, appreciate, respect, and yes... Even insofar as prop as is proper, submit to apostolic uh, fathers like Ignatius. They really are, I think these guys are gifts from God to the church. Something that uh, people that we could, you know, be edified by reading and looking back to. Them. So, uh, Ignatius, and one more thing about them as well is I really believe the apostolic fathers knew as well as anyone where the church's foundation of doctrine would rise. I'll just leave you with this final quote from Ignatius. Again, to the Magnesians, he said this study. Therefore to be established in the doctrines of the Lord and the apostles. <laughs> and that's it the